0: Thank you Craig, please do have a seat and if you've got a church bible open it to Ezekiel chapter 10 page 836 we're going to read a bit of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 um, just as you're turning there let me just um, a wee sneak preview for next week. Next week we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 16. Um, that's a very difficult passage of the Bible. I think it's worth reading, especially if you take young people along to church. Uh, it's not a very PG passage, um, so you might want to read ahead of next week. So if that doesn't entice you to come, then I don't know what will. Um, but we're in chapter 10 tonight. Um, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you've been with us through these studies in Ezekiel, uh, undoubtedly you will find stuff in here that is Uh, maybe a bit weird and confusing, but I hope by the end of tonight you will see how profoundly relevant and wonderful this passage is. Uh, As always, let's set up a bit of context and then we'll dive into reading. Ezekiel the prophet, he spoke God's word uh, 600 years before Jesus, and at that time that he prophesied, Israel was in a real crisis. This is the the lowest point um, in the history of of Israel at this time. Uh, and you see, God had rescued this nation. He had given them great promises, promises that, that they would be used to bless all the nations of the world, promises that that they would be used to establish the kingdom of God, that, that God Himself was going to live amongst them, and they would be his people and He would be their God. And one of the chief structures that many in Israel believed was the guarantee of these promises, was the guarantee of God's presence with them, was the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place where God was said, God's glory was said to have resided. God's glory," we said in, in the first week we looked at these studies, is the kind of visible representation of his greatness. It assured Israel of his intimate, personal presence and care. But here's the problem. You see, God chose this nation, and although He chose them, they choose, they chose. Not to proclaim his name amongst the nations, but rather to profane his name. They had chosen not to listen to his laws on the whole. They chose to worship other gods and they really did some of the most wicked things you could imagine. And so in an act of judgment, after hundreds of years of patient endurance, God sent the mighty Babylonian empire to sack Israel's capital city of Jerusalem and to take most of its residents off into Babylon as prisoners, including a young priest by the name of Ezekiel. Now, here's what we need to understand. Whilst most of God's people were prisoners in exile in Babylon, there was still a group that were left behind in Jerusalem. And so everyone thought at this time, including Ezekiel, we'll see in tonight's passage, they all thought that the, the hope of God's promises was with that tiny remnant that had been left behind in Jerusalem. As long as they were there, as long as the city's still standing, as long as the temple's still there, there is still hope for these great promises that God had made. But what we've seen in the book of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel's message has been one of judgment on Jerusalem. God has been telling people not to put their hope in that city, in that apostate city, because he is going to send the Babylonians back. They are going to absolutely destroy it. They're going to ruin his temple, and God's glory is going to leave his land and his city. Now, we need to understand how unbelievably devastating that news is, That's hundreds of years of understanding how how God worked with his people. All their hope was tied into Jerusalem and the temple's survival. What will become of God's presence if that city falls? And so the big question then in the book of Ezekiel is this. Where will God's glory be if God walks out? Of Jerusalem, if he walks out of Israel, where is God's glory going to be? And let me just show you a slide that explains how that question is addressed in the book as a whole. This is the the entire structure of the book of Ezekiel. So it's quite a complicated book, but it's actually got a very simple structure. See, in the first 24 chapters, the message is simple. God's glory will not be in his rebellious city. God is not going to be in Jerusalem. That's the main message of those 24 chapters. And then in chapters 25 to 33, the message is that God's glory will not be in the proud nations. So you exiles, don't look to Jerusalem for hope and don't look to these great and glorious nations to find my glory. Don't be attracted by their wealth and wisdom, for they too will also face judgment. And then in the, the last third of the book, we get this wonderful message of hope that God's glory will be in his future promise of restoration. In his future promise of restoration. So that's what the entire book of Ezekiel Is about. There you go, it's not that complicated. Now, we're going to be in chapter 10 and 11 tonight, and and this is a passage that comes in the middle of a vision that God gives from chapters 8 through to chapter 11. And in this vision, Ezekiel is seeing why God is judging Jerusalem. And what we saw last week in chapters 8 and 9 is that the reason God is leaving his city. The reason he's bringing judgment upon them is because of their rampant idolatry that was pervasive in every corner of Jerusalem society. And now in chapter 10, Ezekiel, he, remember, he's still in a vision. He's, he's not actually physically in Jerusalem. He's having some kind of, I don't know, weird outer body experience in which he's been transported to Jerusalem to see what's happening there. He, he is taken by God back to the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, he sees God and all his glory. And it's that great picture that we saw uh, way back in chapter 1 by the Chebar Canal. Is that image of God's chariot upheld by these mighty creatures called cherubim. And as Ezekiel is watching this, he sees this kind of heavenly chariot parked outside the temple. And God's glory is about to mount it. And he is about to leave his temple for good. So let's pick it up from there, chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, and I stopped abo- and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kibar River, and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings, and under their wings were what looked like the hands of a man. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kibar River. Each one went straight ahead. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance to the gate were twenty-five men, And I saw among them Jeazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. They say, will it not not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, son of man. Then the the spirit of the Lord came upon me. And he told me to say, this is what the Lord says. This is what you are saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going on through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown, they are the meat and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. I've conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell down and I cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brother's Your brothers who are your blood relatives in the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people And I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylon and the vision given me by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything that the Lord had shown me. Well, let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, we have already sung of how we need your help and we ask again that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Father, there are amazing promises in here. There are severe warnings also. Help us to be challenged where we need to be challenged and help us to be comforted where we need to be comforted. Father, we want to praise you for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit that changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Help us to grasp tonight how amazing it is to be part of that wonderful promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question we are going to think of tonight. How can we know that God is with us? How how can you know... That God is always going to be with you. One of the great tragedies of human sinfulness is that we presume that, that God should always be with us. I mean, we're good people, a lot of us. We're nice. So why would God not want to be with me? But the Bible teaches us, and the Bible's quite clear, that um, those who refuse to turn to God in repentance will spend an eternity without him. What about If you're part of the church, does that mean that God is always going to be with you? If you've read your Bible, if you go to church, if you've been brought up in a Christian household. Does God ever give up on people who say that they are his people? What about in Matthew 5? Where Jesus tells us that on the day of judgment there will be many He says, Who will have called him Lord and will have claimed to have done great things in his name? And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Will God give up on churches? Will God give up on denominations? Will he walk out on them? He could. And here's the thing though, we know that being a genuine Christian means having the certainty of, of God's presence with you now and for all eternity. So how can we know that he will be with us? What, what are the signs of, of genuinely having God with us, God dwell amongst us? And what are some of the dangerous, false sense of security that we might have? What are the signs of hypocrisy? And being far from God's presence. This is where Ezekiel 10 and 11 is going to help us. Because this is about the time that God walked out on Israel. Let me just show you the structure of the passage just so you can see how it works. Again, I love kind of structure stuff. I find it quite helpful. You can see in chapter 10, it's all about God getting ready to leave his temple. Again, this is huge. This is so hugely significant. And then in chapter 11, at the very end of the chapter, God does leave. He, He mounts this kind of cherubim chariot and his glory leaves the city of Jerusalem And it stops off a mountain on the east side of the city, which is known as the Mount of Olives. Tuck that away, it's quite important. So this is a picture of God's glory leaving. But sandwiched in the middle of God's departure are these two pictures of hope. The the false hope that Israel's leaders had. And the true hope that God gives to Ezekiel and his fellow exiles of where his presence will be. And so these are the verses that we're going to chew on tonight. So let's look at the first one. The false hope of God's presence. The delusional security. God takes Ezekiel in his vision to the east gate of the temple to witness something that he wants Ezekiel to see before he leaves Jerusalem. Before he leaves the temple for good. There at the entrance of the gate were 25 men, and I saw among them Jaazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. So what does God want Ezekiel to see? He wants them to see 25 men who are the political leaders of Jerusalem at this time. So after the exile, after most of the nobles and residents had been taken away by Babylon, there was evidently a group left behind who were in charge of the city, 25 of them. And amongst them are two prominent Jerusalemites, Jeazaniah, son of Azur, who, by the way, is not the same Jeazaniah of chapter 8, in case you were wondering, uh, and this guy, Pelatiah, son of Beniah, And they're named probably just because they're well-known. The exiles would have known who these men were. According to God, though, they are men who are evil people, who give wicked advice, and they seem to be filled with with this arrogant, false sense of security, thinking that they are the ones that have been favored by God because they've not been taken into exile. They're still in the holy city. And so have a look at what they say in verse 3. This is what God condemns in them. They say, haven't our houses been recently rebuilt? This city is a pot and we are the meat in it. Now, this is a a very confusing statement, and unfortunately, it's not helped by the translation that we are using. Um, You see, the first part of this statement is put as a question, but if you look at your footnote there, I think that's probably more accurate, it could also be put forward as a statement, which says, this is not the time to build houses. Literally, that is what it should translate as, the time is not near to build houses, now, what does that mean? Well, it's actually a reference to something that another prophet said called Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of Ezekiel's contemporaries, and he prophesied back in Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah 29, we read of a letter that he wrote to the exiles in Babylon. And in that letter, he said that God had told him that this exile was going to last a long, long time. So these Prisoners in Babylon should not put any hope in returning to Jerusalem. Rather, they should settle where they are and they should build houses. And so this letter did the rounds and um, it was widely received and it was widely mocked in Jerusalem. Other false teachers arose at this time and they said, You don't need to listen to that stuff about building houses. Jerusalem's going to be fine. The Babylonians have already came. They didn't destroy it. Jerusalem's going to be totally fine. And so what these leaders are saying here in Ezekiel 11 verse 3 is basically this. That idea of building houses, it's not true. Maybe, maybe those that are far off in Babylon, maybe they can do that. But, but not us. We're, we're the ones who are safe. I mean, we're in Jerusalem. No one's taken us away. Verse 3, this city is a pot and we are the meat in it. It's a metaphor that speaks of their protection. They're saying we are like the the choice cuts of meat protected by this iron walls of a great cauldron. But those who are in exile, like Ezekiel, they're like the awful. They're they're the leftover bits. God doesn't care about them. And you can see that that's what they're thinking. If you look down in verse 14 here as well, in chapter 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives, and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. These exiles are the ones under God's judgment. We don't need to build houses. We're protected in the iron pot of Jerusalem. We're the ones whom God looks with favor upon. We are God's chosen people. We have possession of the land. And so Ezekiel has seen these leaders who are wicked and evil, filled with this arrogant, false sense of security in which they can believe that they can essentially do whatever they want and God will always be with them. And what Ezekiel is told is that the opposite is true. You see, a terrifying judgment is coming for them. Verse 6, chapter 11. These leaders have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown, they are the meat and the city is the pot. But I will drive you out of it. In other words, those dead bodies are safer than you will be. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And you know that's what happened? You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 25. The Babylonians came back to Jerusalem and they took the nobles off to a place called Ribia on the borders of Israel and they executed them. They were brought out of the pot and into the fire as it were. And why did it happen? Because God left them. Because the glory left them. They had no protection. So how do you apply Ezekiel 11 today? Well, we apply it first and foremost as a warning to the church. As a warning to those who are filled with this kind of false sense of security and God's presence, whilst all the while they are in terrible danger of His judgment and they think they're safe because they go to church or because they're religious. These leaders presumed they were safe simply because they lived in Jerusalem. They didn't care about God. God was more like a lucky charm than someone who demanded their whole life's worship. These are the people that Jesus called out in that chapter that Bernard read to us from Matthew 23, these religious hypocrites. And what are the hallmarks of such hypocrisy? What does that look like? Firstly, do you notice they don't take sin seriously? Hypocrisy, as Jesus reminded us, is all about... What looks good on the outside, but is corrupt and evil on the inside. And these leaders who arrogantly think that they are chosen by God, what do they do? Verse 6, they have littered the streets of Jerusalem with the dead. They think they can live how they want with no consequences because they presume upon their religious identity and they care nothing about sin. Secondly, what's the second mark? They have no fear and no reverence of God. They don't really know God. He is this tame, small God amongst other gods who who only exists to to give them what they want. He's there only when he is convenient. Jonathan Edwards used to say that religious hypocrites only ever find God useful. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that when God does execute judgment on them. What will be the outcome? Then they will know. Then they will know that he is the Lord and you do not mess with him. And finally, and really this is the root of the the issue, they don't care about God's word or God's commandments. Verse 12. You will know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but you have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. That's their main problem. If you claim to be a Christian, but your lifestyle is no different in any way to people who aren't Christians, that's a problem. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you should be marked out as different. And the way that difference is seen is through holiness and through obedience to God's word. And so here's the thing. When churches or denomin, denominations are not distinct from the world through their obedience to God's word. When there is no reverence of God. And when they refuse to speak on sin and think the idea of judgment is a joke. What will God do to such people? He'll walk out. Now he's patient and he gives people plenty of times to repent. But that's not a real relationship. That's pretend. Could be now. Could God's? Could the glory leave the church in Scotland? Yes, Jesus talks about his ability to snuff out the lampstands of a church. But one thing's for certain, if it's not now, it will be at the end of time when Jesus comes back to judge all of mankind. And don't think that your religious identity or your church affiliation will be able to save you on that day because that counts for squat. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't say you were religious, but you have a a safe and a comfortable lifestyle, secure in the iron pot of your finance or your job or your ambition or those wonderful relationships. But when Jesus comes back, those things will not save you. They won't save you from your sins because God won't let any sin we've committed go unpunished. And we may feel safe, you may feel safe, but you're in danger. Jesus is coming back. It's like that um, scene in the the film Titanic, you know, where the ship has just struck the iceberg and there's only a few people that know it's going to sink and and you see everyone having a good time and those in first class are drinking brandy and smoking cigars and those in third class are having a keelie. And I think it's the the captain who says to the engineer of the ship, Mr. Andrews, when he finds out that it's going to sink, this ship can't sink, it's the Titanic. Mr. Andrews turns to him and says, she's made of iron, sir. I assure you, she will sink. Judgment is coming. There is a day. The ship is sinking and the punishment that God gives to all who refuse to come to him well, is to give them what they want, to be cast away from him. And so then what is the hope for God's presence? You know the storyline of the Bible is God's desire to to live with humanity free from sin, to bring us into his presence. If his people are persistently sinful, like we all are, what is the hope? And that is really the question that's been asked by Ezekiel here. In verse 13, look at that. He witnesses a wee foretaste of God's judgment. Pelatiah dies, and Ezekiel is so broken by this that he cries out in despair, Will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? You see, Ezekiel thought the same as the leaders in Jerusalem. He thought that those who were left in Jerusalem were the last hope, the remnant, the last hope of God's promises. And if they die, then what's going to happen? In fact, what hope is there for any of us, for God dwelling with, with any of us when we're all messed up sinners? And we are. Well, God's response to Ezekiel is staggering. And this is where we see our second point. The true hope of God's presence, a divine heart surgery. This is the first real message of hope in the book of Ezekiel. You've been patient as we've gone through it. Um, There's lots of it at the end, but it kind of breaks forth here at the end of this vision. God wants Ezekiel to know something. That the loss of Israel's land that the loss of Israel's city, that the loss of Israel's temple does not mean the loss of Israel's God. He will not be with those apostate people in Jerusalem. Make no mistake about it. But the hope of his presence will be found where? With the exiles. Verse 16, therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And do you see what God's saying there? Though you exiles may be far from the temple in Jerusalem, I want you to know that wherever you are, wherever you have been scattered, I will be with you. I will be your sanctuary, Your temple for a little while. The hope of Israel was never found in the bricks and mortar of the temple in Jerusalem, but in God himself. He is with them and this is what he is going to do. He is going to bring them back to the land and look at the promise. Verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart And put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see, God's going to take these exiles and he's going to make them into something new, something different. And notice that it's not their devotion to him that's going to achieve this. Notice that how many times God says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do it. He will unite them together. And give them an undivided heart. He will give them a new spirit. He will radically transform them. Hearts of stone will become hearts of flesh. What does that mean? It means that God is going to bring about a supernatural change within these people. He will remove their stony hearts. That's hearts that are cold. Hearts that are indifferent towards him. Hearts that indulge in sin. Hearts that are dead in God's eyes because they're, they're set in rebellion against him. He's going to remove those hearts and he will transform them into living, beating hearts of flesh. Hearts that are now alive to God Hearts that that care for Him. Hearts that hate their sin and and they want to love God. Hearts that want to obey His commandments. That's what God says in verse 20. Do you notice the order? It's not obey God and He'll change your heart. What happens? It's God will change your heart and then you will want to obey Him. This is the promise of Christian conversion. This is what, what Jesus will later call the new birth. Being a Christian is not about adopting an idea. It's about being radically changed from the inside out. And it's only something God can do. So how is that possible? You know, the exiles did go back to the land eventually. But the glory of God didn't come back to the temple. In fact, we're told that when they rebuilt it, um, people were happy. But those who remembered what it looked like wept. Wept. But it was nothing like what it used to be. It didn't really come back until 600 years later, not in a building, but in a baby. The apostle John says of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Now that verse is amazing. The glory came back. Jesus is God in the flesh. Come down to us. And he came to make the promise of Ezekiel 11 possible, not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. He came to do away with the temple and to create something more permanent and real, something that the temple was meant to point us towards. And did you notice in that reading in Matthew 23, it was a bit of a, a weird reading, cutting it off in verse 3 of chapter 24. But did you notice that Jesus in Acts... The movement of God's glory in Ezekiel 10 and 11. So he pronounces judgment on Israel's religious hypocrites. And then, in, just at the end of chapter 23, as he weeps over the apostate city of Jerusalem, he pronounces judgment on the house of God there. And what does he do? He moves away from the temple. And where does he go? It's no accident. He goes to the Mount of Olives, the Mount on the east side of the city, that same place where the glory of God stopped off in Ezekiel 11. And there he teaches his disciples about his return in glory. Jesus pronounces a, a judgment on the temple because he is about to do something that will show we don't need a temple anymore. At the cross, As he died, as he bade, as he bore the punishment for our sin, all that sin that should rightly separate us from God's presence, he takes it. And what happens to him? He is separated from God's presence so that we would never have to be, so that we could be brought in, so that the glory would not leave. He does it so that our sin will be paid for, so that God, by his Holy Spirit, can now take up residence in our life. So where does God live today? He lives in us. In all who trust Jesus. Now how do you know that that's you? That you have God's spirit in you. That you are God's temple. You know it's you. If you hate your sin. And you desire to love Jesus more. And you want to listen to his word and obey his commands. Even if you fail Because a stony heart cannot do that. A stony heart does not hate sin. A stony heart does not revere God. Only a heart that's made alive by God's spirit. Is that you? My brother and sister, if that is you, then God has done something amazing in you. He has transformed you. You are his temple now. The temple that he will never leave. We are standing in the middle of the great promises given in Ezekiel. There's more to come, but we're standing in them now. And I just want to close by getting us just very briefly to think about the immense applications of this, that God is in us and that he's changed our hearts. Firstly, we need to recognize there's no room for any sort of pride or arrogance in, in those who would call themselves Christians. I mean, what do you have to be proud of? We are, I've said it a few times tonight, we are messed up sinners. We really are. It doesn't matter what our background is. We are all under judgment. And the only reason that we are safe is because of God's grace and his transforming power. He did the work, not us. He transformed us. That's why in the Gospels, do you know, it's the, it's the religious hypocrites that Jesus criticizes did you notice it's the ones who they would have considered were far from God that were brought in? The outsiders, the poor, the lepers, the Gentiles, the thieves, the prostitutes, the sinners, those who humbly come in repentance. We can't be arrogant because it's God who transforms our hearts. It was Jesus who saved us. It was Jesus who changed us. And our only boast, therefore, is in his wonderful cross. Secondly, we need to realize that what every Liverpool fan sings is true. You never walk alone. As a Christian, you never, ever walk alone in the darkest times whether you're going through Death's Dark Valley or whether you're in the green pastures the good shepherd does not leave his people he is with us by his spirit in times of great trial we are never far from him in fact it's often in those moments where you feel his presence Jesus will not abandon those whom he gave up everything to get and finally, we need to recognize this. It can be tempting as we look out at the state of the church in Scotland to think that God has left. This nation used to be known as the land of the book, and yet its two major denominations have openly turned from his word. But we must know that God never, ever abandons those who are faithful to him. Never. No matter how small and weak. It may seem By the way, think of Ezekiel's situation here. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than the situation he is in. He has lost everything, and he sits in his little mud hut by the banks of the Kibar River. And yet, and yet even in that dark time, God was doing something amazing. Who knows what he can do in this nation again? We do not lose heart, for one thing is for sure. He will be with us right up until the very end of the age, as Jesus says. And then we will see him in the fullness of his glory. Then we will be in his presence. And nothing can stop that from happening. As the hymn writer says, That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, He will not, he cannot, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. He'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing promise that you gave to Ezekiel and the exiles of how you were to be a sanctuary to them for a little while. And then you came in all your glory in the person of Jesus. And we saw it full of grace and truth. Father, thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we can be changed by you. Father, we thank you that when we come to you in humble repentance, when we come seeking your face, when we come asking for your forgiveness, you never turn us away. And you lavish us with grace and love when we deserve nothing. You give us the greatest thing you could possibly give us. Yourself. And so we praise you that we have your Holy Spirit, that you are changing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Help us to be those who persistently hate sin and take it seriously and those who love Jesus. Lord, may we fight off the sin that hinders us and may we seek more of Christ for that is what flesh hearts do. And we pray, Lord, that That would be evident in our life. We pray, Father, that our security would not be in our identity, our heritage, our our niceness, our religiosity. But our security would be only in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. May that be our only boast. May that be the only thing that we look to. Father, we thank you that your presence is with us now. Always with us. Even sometimes when we don't feel it. You're always there. And Thank you that the promise of the gospel is to be with you for all eternity. Help us to have our eyes fixed on that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's finish by singing a great hymn. It is well with my soul. If your heart has been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, this is a a song that we can sing confidently regardless of what happens It is well. God is always with us and we will be with him. So let's stand and sing this song together as the band begins to play.